Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk here on Alleist 89.3. Austin Cross with you. With you most of this week while Larry is away. But he will be back to give you some Valentine's Day love. All right. Did you catch the game yesterday? All 50 or so seconds of Taylor Swift existing. Usher, Alicia Keys, reminding us that 2004 was 20 years ago. Beyonce dropping songs like this one. Our girl Beyonce went country. I am loving that. Uh, Such a good time. I hope that you had a wonderful day yesterday. Also, as you just heard there on NPR, we're remembering today late NPR Morning Edition host Bob Edwards. He woke America up for 25 years, ending his run in 2004. Edwards died this weekend at the age of 76. Well, we start today with Jon Stewart. Comedy Central's prodigal son. He has returned to host The Daily Show on Monday nights, now through the November election. But let's face it, a lot has changed since 2015. Big one, you could probably think of too, former President Trump has become a bigger voice in conservative politics. I mean, I will just say the media has had to learn how to cover Trump. A lot has changed. But also, there is now a crowded field of comics mining the news cycle for those laughable tidbits. And there's even a whole generation of online content creators building on the style The Daily Show made popular. But let's talk about it with Madeline Smithberg. She is the co-creator and original showrunner of The Daily Show. She's joining me live now. Madeline, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, it is my pleasure. (laughs) Well, let's start here, because Jon Stewart came to The Daily Show in about 1999, following original host Craig Kilborn. In your view, because you'd been working on that show for a number of years before, what did Stewart bring to the show that you were creating at the time? Well, I think that when Jon first came in, uh, it was a little bit, Rocky, for me, it was two worlds colliding. I had done the Jon Stewart show on MTV and in syndication. And, uh, you know, Jon and I had this incredible sort of comedy creating marriage. It was like we really gelled in terms of seeing things through the same eyes and figuring out uh, how to get there. And The Daily Show was built on fake seriousness right and i think it took a little bit of time but where it really really gelled and where i felt like my worlds had successfully collided was when we did a year-end special in 1999 and called it the greatest millennium and basically went back through a thousand years uh of news in one hour of comedy and in that process we sort of stumbled upon the next iteration of the daily show with john which was to go bigger 
with John to go just he could go as big as we could make his head in the screen. And we took the sort of tent <laughs> topple nightline uh, shot from behind with the shoulders and we went crazy and made it gigantic. And the more absurd the news got, the bigger we made John. And that really came into play after the 2000 election when there was this 34 day gap uh, between the elections and the Supreme Court awarding the presidency to George W. Bush. And during those 34 days, The Daily Show really became the only sort of quote-unquote news source that was able to say what everybody in quote-unquote legitimate or real media wanted to say but couldn't, which was, this is ridiculous. And so what we did was take the ridiculousness mm. and not only double, but like triple down on it. And in that, you know, sort of expanse of time, Jon Stewart and The Daily Show rose to a place where we really earned the respect of the media itself because we were able to do things that everybody else really wished they could, which was just take our gloves off and sort of point a giant neon arrow at the ridiculousness of the situation. Talking right now with Madeline Smithberg, co-creator and original showrunner of The Daily Show. Of course, we're talking about the news that uh, Jon Stewart will come back to Comedy Central's program starting tonight. Uh, and I was going to bring this up, but you kind of got to it already that 1999, the year 2000, was a great time for the show to hit its stride because of the Bush v. Gore uh, moment. And of course, folks would remember at this time, there wasn't social media. You know, you couldn't tweet out, this is insane, or I can't believe this is happening. So I'd imagine for a lot of people, even for you working on the show, it was probably so nice to have that outlet, to have that ability to look at a clip or look at something that uh, a judge said and just be like, this, this, this is absolutely wild. Why is this happening? How important was it for you when you were in the room at the time? How important was it that you could have that ability to say those things? Oh, it was a comedian's dream. Uh, and here we were, we had all of these people. One of my, uh, the night after uh, the election, we were supposed to be at a party at Comedy Central was throwing then like Florida flipped in the middle of our two hour live election broadcast. And the next morning we went on the air and uh, next morning, it was the next evening, sorry, but it was, the idea was it was the day after and we had mm. Stephen Colbert all disheveled and there were like 15 empty <laughs> cups of coffee and there was a ashtray filled with cigarettes and the, he had not, John and Stephen hadn't shaved. And so the idea was that they just been sitting there all night reporting on nothing. <laughs> and it was hilarious. And then I had this funny idea that to send Stephen down to Florida and interview uh, senior citizens. And the game was that we told this group of senior citizens that we were going to do an interview with them. But if they did it, we would buy them lunch. And we provided five menus and then shot the process of these people trying to decide what they were going to order for lunch and sort of showing like these are the voters that we left it to. 
Magnuson, who is making our decision. They can't even decide if they want to go deli or Italian. And it was one of the funniest. It was just, so we were having fun with it. And I think that underneath we were furious. And it was being able to release your kind of disgust and anger and frustration in comedy is it's a wonderful thing to have, you know, I mean, it, just... it sounds like a real pressure release valve too, at a time when Correct. so many Correct. people were upset. It's like, ah, at least I can laugh. I can get it out somehow because you'd we have so many emotions at that yeah. point. Uh, I'm kind of curious about your reaction when the news came that John Stewart would be coming back once a week during this election cycle, which, uh, Obviously, there are also a lot of strong feelings around right now. How did you feel when you heard that news? Well, at at first, I was just sort of, you know, stunned as anybody else. And then I thought, you know, just to make it about me, uh, look at you, Madeline Smithford. You created this thing. The moment of Zen was my cat watching Charles Garald. The original structure of the show is the format that, you know, Liz and I created. And it's just been this revolving door of talent that has made so many careers and shown, uh, you know, viewers just so much amazing comedic talent. And I'm so proud of it. And then I thought, yeah, that makes perfect sense. We need John right now. This is just the situation has devolved into a state of absurdity but it's really dangerous absurdity and like the the sort of you know one of the ways that this thing can go is frankly terrifying and i think the landscape has changed and i think that while we as the daily show were making fun of the media and that was really the main goal of the show in its inception uh it also has a voice that can reach people that maybe are turned off from watching sort of siloed news, you know, like nobody's, everybody's retreated into their silos and hopefully the insightful commentary masked as serious journalism uh, of the Daily Show with John at the helm can kind of through the screaming match that has become uh, you know, the coverage and maybe, you know, bring some attention to a situation and put it in terms that maybe people can be, I don't know, scared enough to think that their vote is really important and they better get out there. And I mean, do this it. is such an interesting concept, and it's something that I've thought about before about just the role that comedy plays especially in times when there's a lot of polarization. And of course, now what the show has in its favor is that social media will take a clip, can take a moment, it can push it out in front of more people who maybe aren't sitting down and watching it live on Comedy Central or the next day on Paramount Plus, but they're just getting that little tidbit. Uh, And it can make them think uh, maybe in a way that they hadn't thought before. I know that you're not working on the show presently, but obviously a lot of competition, media landscape has changed, stakes are different, but how would you approach it today? I mean, what would be 
your way in to still connect with people yeah, and even new audiences, maybe people who don't remember John Stewart when he was on the show almost I nine mean, years ago. I mean, I would double down. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, um, I, I'm, I would double down on the silliness. I think that we're, you know, we have a lot of angry voices out in the sort of, you know, landscape on both sides and a lot of lecturing. And it just seems like it's an echo chamber, two echo chambers next to each other. And I feel that the way that The Daily Show, especially with John, can break through is to sort of double down on the absurdity and not get too angry. I feel like there's enough anger already out there that to really have an effect and break through. If I were in the morning meeting this morning, I would be, you know, sort of lobbying for doubling down on silliness because I think that that which you know comes through the the noise in with a light-hearted touch and makes people actually laugh at something that seems really scary otherwise is the secret weapon of comedy which is you're not it doesn't seem like you're being taught a lesson. It seems like you're being entertained. And then you realize, wait, I just started thinking in a different way. But <laughs> Did I, I learn something? That, yeah, it's the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Well, I want to actually kind of test your chops, Madeline Smithberg, co-creator, original showrunner of The Daily Show. Uh, <laughs> but if you were at that morning meeting right now, is there a recent news story that you think is just ripe for, for, for uh, featuring? Well, I would go right to this whole thing that Trump's pulled out yesterday about NATO mm. and, you know, wouldn't protect. And so he's basically, you know, he's positioning himself as Putin's sort of like, you know, power within NATO. And yeah, he said essentially really, they've got to pay. They've got to pay yeah. to, for the protection. And if they yeah, don't pay, pay to play to then, pay for the protection. Yes. And Putin can <laughs> do what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that is like so terrifying. I can't even, you know, begin to think of what a Europe looks like where we're not protecting the countries that, you know, are right there. The borders are tiny. Like in Europe, you can take a train or a plane to another country in like 12 minutes. Like it's not the United States is unique at being sort of isolated over here with, I think there's some countries in the North called Canada and this one called Mexico to the South, but we're really like, you know, just so isolated. And I think it's the, the cause of a lot of our problems, but Europe is just all on top of each other. And, you know, to have someone who potentially who was and could again be the president of the United States are undermining NATO and, and without doing, he just says what's ever in his head, and it's so dangerous. And I feel like if you get angry and call it out as what it really is, you're just going to have people, you know, the ones that you're really trying to get to, which are younger sort of voters and viewers, and get them ignited and involved. We need them. And if they hear it as a lecture, they, you know, cover their ears mm -hmm. and go, nah, nah, nah. So I just think it's doubling down on the silliness and really being able to amuse people 
and then throw the message in in a way that it doesn't feel like anyone's being lectured. That's Madeline Smithberg, co-creator, original showrunner of The Daily Show. She currently hosts an online comedy cooking show called Mad in the Kitchen. Uh, but the news here, John Stewart is coming back to the show that he once helmed tonight as his first night back. Madeline Smithberg, thank you so much for making the time. You're so welcome. I'll be watching. <laughs> when we come back, did you catch that Super Bowl ad that sounded a whole lot like an old ad for, well, I don't know, President John F. Kennedy? Except this is for one of his family members, RFK Jr., who's currently running as an independent. <sighs> Whole lot of controversy around that, but we've actually been looking into RFK for our podcast, Imperfect Paradise, and specifically RFK's connections to wellness conspiracy theories. Imperfect Paradise host Antonio Sarahito joins me when we come back. 60 seconds. This is Airtalk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on a Monday. Austin Cross with you. I hope that you are having a great one. Larry's back with you on Wednesday for Valentine's Day. And coming up, we're going to be talking a lot about love here on Air Talk today. The Gottmans, the Gottman Institute, you might remember them. Both of them are going to join me. They have a new book uh, titled Fight Right. You know, if you're in a relationship, you're going to fight. Inevitable. Inevitable. But you got to learn the rules and how to do it right. We're going to talk about that. We'll also take your calls. Just a few minutes. But first, let's talk about one Super Bowl ad that caught a lot of a people's uh, attention last night. It was an ad supporting independent, pardon me, independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's the son of Senator Robert F. Kennedy and the nephew of President John F. Kennedy. So let's listen to that. Now, does that add? Do you want a man for president who's seasoned through and through? Sound familiar? A man who's old enough to know. Maybe. And young enough to do. Well, yeah, it's the same uh, structure of music, photos used in a 1960s ad for JFK, and it sparked a lot of outrage, even from some of the Kennedy family members that led RFK Jr. to apologize on X last night, saying he had no involvement in that ad. It came from a super PAC. So... 
Joining me to talk about RFK Jr., though, this is a guy that we've actually spent a lot of time looking into, Antonia Sarahito. She's host of the LAist Studios podcast in Perfect Paradise. And its most recent episode actually takes on conspiracies in the wellness community and how Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is deeply connected. Antonia, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Austin. So he was beloved by the left, and now that's kind of changed. So let's just start with his family and why some of his family members are denouncing his campaign. Yeah. So um, RFK Jr. has obviously an extremely sad background story. His father was murdered. His uncle, former president JFK, was murdered. And he had this like very tragic teenage adolescent experience. He was addicted to heroin from age 15 to 30. And then he sort of emerged from that as a real environmental hero. He became an environmental lawyer um, and worked to clean up the Hudson River and was known for fighting corporations. And he was this really beloved leftist figure. And then in 2005, um, he started to get really involved with these anti-vaccine groups. He Mm. met a lot of mothers who believed that their children had been injured with injured by vaccines that had mercury and that these vaccines were causing thousands of children to develop autism. And he wrote a series of articles about this issue. And it turned out to be completely false. Um, None of that was correct. And I think that the experience of being called out, at least this is what experts have told me, really sort of emboldened him um, to go deeper into anti-vaccine theories, to get very conspiratorial against, uh, you know, questions of toxicity and corporations coming for our health, which, of course, some of that is is true, but he would take it to an extreme. And... um, And he's really now uh, running as an independent. He initially started as a Democrat. He decided to go away from that because a lot of Democrats, including his family, um, are very concerned with how far he's gone into conspiracies. So let's talk about some of the concern, especially around connecting RFK Jr. to JFK. And I should mention that even though he apologized on X, the video is still pinned to his ex account. Okay. So some questions there already, but why are people concerned about him making this connection between JFK, now RFK? Well, yeah, he's um, really, his campaign has been doubling down on this nostalgia. Um, I was actually able to, I I was sent a Zoom video of one of his campaign events that happened here in Los Angeles. And a major point they brought up is he comes from this legacy. They talked about how when Kennedy was president, the the idea was the best and brightest and we want to bring the U.S. back to its glory days. And it's sort of like a like left-wing version of Make America Great Again. Um, and yet a lot of his family members are like, okay, this is not what our father or uncle meant um, when he talked about the best and brightest. It was not having these conspiratorial um, ideas and and fomenting them really as like a central part of his campaign. Mm. Um, so, And he truly believes some of these things. We're going to get into those in just a second. But he actually believes them because I know in politics, sometimes there are people who will say things because they know it will appear appeal to a certain crowd and they might not necessarily believe in the thing that they're saying themselves. But based off of your research, it sounds like he actually does personally believe in some of these conspiracies as well. Can you tell me about some of those conspiracies? Yeah, I think the most um, 
the one that I, what most surprised me was during the pandemic, he spread the conspiracy that the Bill Gates Foundation was helping develop coronavirus vaccines to help control people via microchip. Wow. Yeah. Um, just last week, he posted a clip of him on the Howie Mandel podcast talking about how the first week in office, he wants to go to the NIH and get them to start doing quote unquote real science about the vaccines, but also figure out what's the difference between the blue Gatorade and red Gatorade. Um, blue Gatorade. <laughs> I know. I red was surprised Gatorade. to hear that was his first week. Is, uh, is this actually a thing? Are people sitting around thinking that there's a difference between them? Yes, and that how it impacts the body. He also believes that um, chemicals are causing gender dysphoria. Um, and so it, it really all is about this sort of like centering the body as the temple and, and trying to get mm -hmm. rid of pollution. And he connects, you know, pollution in our, the river and in our soil to bodily pollution and also pollution in government. Um, uh, OK, well, so so bring this on home for me, because he has found uh, an audience in a certain community, a wellness community. Obviously, you know, as a third party candidate, they have historically always just kind of only acted as spoilers. So maybe the possibility of him becoming president, not very likely. But what's the overall effect of having him now with the Super Bowl ad, but having him uh, take such a spotlight in our national discourse? Yeah, so I was not very aware of RFK Jr. The reason why I stumbled upon this reporting was because we had been doing this podcast about uh, yoga teachers here in Los Angeles who had become radicalized conspiracists during the pandemic. Right. And we really set up that series initially a year ago, and we were revisiting it now. And I spoke to Matthew Remsky, who's the co-host of a podcast co called Conspirituality, which mm -hmm. looks at the conflation between uh, spiritual spaces, wellness spaces, and conspiracies. And I sort of asked him, I was like, you know, what's happened since the pandemic? Like, what's been going on? And he's like, well, a lot of those ideas are being mainstreamed right now onto the political main stage through RFK Jr.'s campaign. And sure enough, like a lot of the Kundalini yoga teachers are are backing RFK Jr. Like there was an, mm. a Kundalini yoga teacher who held a campaign event for RFK Jr. just last month. Oh um, we know people from that story who have been posing with him at events. And I think that for a lot of people in L.A., this is a town where there's a lot of people who are like your body is your temple and who are very mm. fitness oriented and who care a lot about like what goes in and out of your body. RFK's Jr. sort of obsession with like being anti-pollution and, and being bodily pure really appeals to them. Um, I also so think it's worth noting that he himself is like a fitness freak. Oh, like yeah. he's in incredible shape for a 71 year old and posts like pictures of himself. Is he looking good? Yeah, doing push-ups and, and working out. Um, and he's also emphasized that as part of his campaign. Well, I mean, can I just say, though, like within these communities, like there's there's some woo-woo, some woo-woo communities, and there's nothing the matter with being woo-woo. But just like in, say, Christianity, there's just a range of people. You have, you know, people who believe one thing, and then you'll have people far on the other side who believe, you know, America needs to be a Christian nation and all these other sorts uh, of things. I mean, how... I guess I'm just wondering, like, how much of the community actually goes in for these sorts of conspiracy theories and just how much of it maybe they just, you know, believe in having a clean body and, and eating well. Oh, for sure. And, you know, like, I practice yoga and I think that exercise is good. And I, it's, I think that's also part of why it's sort of the slippery slope that we were talking about. Um, you know, he... It is incredible that he worked to to clean the Hudson River, and there 
corporations do pollute our rivers and our soils. Like there's absolutely a lot of truth in what he says. It's that it goes into this, it slips over the edge. And I do think that, I think that's niche, but he is attracting a huge number of people. He's polling right behind Biden and Trump. Um, He has a huge audience specifically on these podcasts that he does. He goes on a podcast circuit. These are podcasts that are not known for a lot of fact checking. And he really likes that uh, format to get his ideas out. And there are millions of people in this country who get most of their news from these podcasts. I mean, we were just talking about The Daily Show. Like, I think a lot of people feel overburdened by mainstream news sometimes and they Mm -hmm. seek alternative media. And the danger there is that they're spreading a lot of information that is straight up false. And so he has a very large audience in those spaces. RFK, his connection with conspiracy theories. You can learn more about it in this season of Imperfect Paradise. Antonio Sarajito is the host of Imperfect Paradise. Antonia, thanks so much for coming out and just giving us some thoughts after this ad on the Super Bowl. Thanks, Austin. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3, also online, LAist.com, on our app, the LAist app. Sounds crystal clear anywhere you go. It's really stellar. Well, look, everyone who's been in a relationship knows that fights happen. But do you know how to fight right? Therapists John and Julie Gottman have a new book that offers up some tools and wisdom to help turn down the temperature on those disagreements and turn your disses into kisses. The book is called Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection. Joining us are the book's authors, Julie Schwartz Gottman and John Gottman. They are both psychologists, researchers, co-founders of the Gottman Institute, and I love this part, they are married to each other. Julie Gottman, John Gottman, thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, thank you for the opportunity. It's great. And of course, oh, John, sorry, I interrupted you there. For folks listening in, I want to hear maybe about a successful or productive argument that you've had with your partner, what it was about, and maybe how you you made it work. 866-893-5722 is the number. Obviously, you'll have to keep it a little bit short so we can get that story in. But if you can think of a time when you were having a difficult difficult discussion with a partner, but you found a way 
to make it productive, found a way to get everybody to yes uh, and satisfied with what they got out of that. 866-893-5722 is our number. You can also email us, atcomments at laist.com. Well, Julie Gottman, I just want to start with the most basic of questions about fighting, and that is why we fight, because there's a few key reasons why we do that. Can you line those out for us? <laughs> yes. Um, well, I would say the first reason that we fight is we actually inhabit two different bodies with two different brains. And those brains are never clones of each other, at least not so far. And if they were, we'd really be bored. So typically, we're really attracted, actually, to people who are very different from us. And what that means is differences in personality, differences in lifestyle preferences, and when those differences clash, voila, we have a fight. <laughs> so you'd say there's some truth to this concept of opposites attracting? Yes, there is, actually. There's some research behind it. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to this conflict, John... Conflict isn't necessarily bad. And I will say on a personal level, that's something that I had to learn myself is that just because you had a fight, just because you had a disagreement doesn't mean you need to throw the relationship away or that it's, you know, to follow this romantics narrative that it's not the right one for you. And I think that some of your research, John, actually showed that newlyweds who fought more had stronger relationships later. So there is a value to fighting, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fighting has a goal, and people don't realize it. The goal is mutual understanding. And all the fights in the beginning of a relationship seem to cluster around this question, are you going to be there for me? Can I trust you? Am I really important to you? Am I more important than your mother? Am I more important than your soccer team? Am I more important than your friends? And are you going to be faithful to me? Are you, are you mm. going to find me sexually attractive years from now? All of the fights were about building trust. You know, it's so interesting just to hear you say that because when, when you say it, I notice I can feel within myself, my heart opens up because it sparks this empathy within me that, um, oh, you're worried that, you know, I'm not going to be here for you. Oh, let, let me reassure you that I'll be here mm -hmm. for you. Let me reassure you that you matter to me. Exactly. But I'll say in a lot of fights, they don't really come out that way. Um, <laughs> and, and that leads me to this question about conflict styles. Um, Julie, could you line out mm -hmm. who people are? And then I'll tell people which one I am. But can you line out just kind of what mm -hmm. categories people fall into? Sure. So the first category uh, we call conflict avoiders, and conflict avoiders um, will have differences between them, and they'll say a little bit about how they feel about a particular issue, but then they will agree to disagree. They won't try to persuade the other person that they're right or that uh, there should be some kind of compromise in between. Instead, they just leave it alone, put it under the rug, and keep going with their life. That's conflict avoiders. 
Uh, validators are another interesting group. Conflict validators are people who will talk a little bit more about their feelings, about an issue. They'll be very rational about it, and they will move pretty quickly to persuasion, trying to persuade the other person about their own position on the issue. Um, but they'll stay calm, they'll say they'll stay gentle, and they mm. typically will reach a compromise pretty quickly. Then we have volatiles. <laughs> Da-da, and I'm raising my hand. You can't see it, but here I am. I'm a volatile. And um volatile uh partners are folks who are very, let's call it passionate. <laughs> They're very passionate and intense about their feelings. They express their feelings right away. Feelings come right out. They jump into trying to persuade their partner about their own position, but they do so with a lot of intensity. So their voices may get louder. Um, they will be very... Mm, uh, let's see, kind of like a rocket ship in right. terms of zooming away with their position on the issue. So um, there can also be mismatches, which is really interesting in couples, oh. where you'll have one person being volatile, another person being avoidant. And that uh, can be worked out. Uh, potentially it can be a problem, but if both people talk about, okay, we know we have different styles of conflict and we really want to be able to resolve our conflicts. So what is a different process we can use to talk about our conflicts that Miss or Mr. Avoider are not going to scare you and Miss or Mr for them, mm -hmm. volatile, uh, will simply um, still get their point across, but maybe not with a lot of volume. I'm talking right now with Julie Schwartz-Gottman, psychologist, co-founder of the Gottman Institute, along with her husband, John Gottman, also a psychologist, co-founded that institute with her. Together they did. Their book out right now is called Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection. And for folks listening in, I'm curious if there's a time that you can think of in your life when you turned a conflict into a connection. What did you do? How did you get there? 866-893-5722 is the number. Again, that's 866-893-5722. Julie, you raised your hand, as you said, when you were talking about volatile conflict styles. And mm -hmm. first of all, what I love about the book is that you use so many examples from you and John's life uh, about how your conflict styles have come up, but also where those conflict styles originated. And so I want to ask about just the role that parents play in making us who we are and kind of programming us from the get-go to approach conflict the way that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you're pointing out a really important point, which is where do we learn our conflict styles? And typically we learn them at home with our caretakers. We will watch our caretakers either talk about conflict or hide their conflicts. And um, depending on what our folks do or our grandparents do, whoever is caring for us, we may either imitate what they do and we end up speaking almost their same language when we bring up issues with our partner, 
Or mm. if we really didn't like how they talked about conflict, let's say they cursed each other out, they were contemptuous of each other, um, they really will try to avoid being like their uh, parents or caretakers and do the opposite when it comes to their own relationship. But that doesn't always work either mm. um, because you know, basically, you're in the same rut, you're in the same road, whether you're going forward or going backwards, you're still reacting to what your folks did. And what they did is not always a good thing. 866-893-5722 is the number. If you've been able to turn a conflict in your relationship into connection, I'm curious how you did it. 866-893-5722. And John Gottman, that just leads... Me to wonder, you know, and I'll say I think I'm an avoider, but I also might be a few different things in there. Maybe a little bit of, maybe a little from column A, a little from column B. Uh, <laughs> but can you change your conflict style or, you know, are we just kind of destined to repeat a lot of what we learned in childhood? Well, you know, at first, at first I thought it was inevitable that we would stay with a conflict style wow. and never change. It wasn't until... Julie and I started collaborating on changing relationships about 26 years ago that I discovered that really people can vary their conflict style. They can actually change if they talk about it with their partner. Well, I mean, that's comforting to know. Um, before we head to break, I want to get in this, this, this concept of the horsemen of the apocalypse, because I think mm -hmm. that that's so important in all of this. If you've been listening, I'm talking to the Gottmans, Julie Gottman, John Gottman, Gottman Institute. They've got a new book, Fight Right. Um, and kind of surrounding all of this, when we start to decide and decode who we are and who we've historically been, we also just look at the state of our relationship. And when there are certain things present you have learned through your research, mm -hmm. it could be a sign that some intervention is needed before that relationship falls apart. John, can you tell right. us about those horsemen? What are they? Yeah, it's, it's basically uh, that people in un unhappy relationships start by pointing their finger at their partner and saying, you're the problem. As far as I can tell, I'm really perfect, but you're defective. And we call that criticism. Mm. That's the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And amazingly enough, people who are critical really think they're being constructive and helpful. And they're hoping that their partner responds by saying, oh, thank you, John, for pointing out all the ways in which I'm failing. Can we have lunch next week so you can tell me more about how I'm <laughs> Does that ever you? happen? <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't happen that way. What you get instead is second horseman of the apocalypse, defensiveness. Mm -hmm. Either counterattack, an escalated counterattack, or an innocent victim stance. Uh, you know, you don't see all the good things I do. You're always picking on me. I can't ever do anything right for you. Oh, poor me. You know, that's defensiveness. That's the second horseman. A third one is an escalation of criticism that we call contempt, mm. which is being critical but from a superior place. Like you're better than your partner on some dimension. You're more punctual. You're tidier. You're more sensitive parent. Something about you is better than your partner. So from on high, you'll offer this criticism. 
And we discovered that contempt is not only our best predictor of relationships falling apart, it also predicts how many infectious illnesses the recipient wow. of contempt will have in the next four years. So it's killing the immune system Golly. at the same time as it's killing love and affection and intimacy. And the fourth horseman we call stonewalling. And that's really withdrawing and mm. not giving a speaker any cues that you're listening. You're, you're just a stone wall. And part of what we discovered, Bob Levinson and I, in, in our initial research, was that people who stonewall are really physiologically aroused. Their hearts are beating very fast. Flooded Their blood almost. pressure is high. Yeah. So they're withdrawing for good reason. You know, they're trying to endure this terrible onslaught from their partner and just get through it. John, we're going to take a quick break, but talking right now with John Gottman, psychologist, co-founder of the Gottman Institute. Julie Gottman co-founded it along with him. They've got a new book, Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection. So we've gotten the down low on how we fight now. We've also learned maybe some of the warning signs to look for in relationships. When we come back, we're going to learn how to fight right. Now that we've got the essentials, how do we have those difficult relationship conversations, but also I'd love to hear from you if you've successfully navigated a difficult conversation in your relationship. 866-893-5722 is our number. We'll be right back. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross, and most of this week for Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for hanging out with me this morning. You know, every couple fights, but you got to learn how to fight right if you want to keep your relationship in good shape. I'm talking right now with Julie Schwartz Gottman, psychologist, co-founder of the Gottman Institute, along with John Gottman. They founded it together. They've got a new book titled Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection helpful book so far just for me listening to it not only for you know my marriage of course but also just for relationships in general really helps you think about people in a different way julie i mentioned this before the break but there are so many things that a couple can do to maybe start having their fights right but since this is radio and we have a limited time if you could just choose one you must remember this sort of tip for a person as they go in to a potential conflict in their relationship, what should they remember? Um, okay, Austin, they should remember how to bring up an issue. Uh, this is an antidote to the criticism and contempt that people often use to bring up an issue. And what we discovered in our research is that the first three minutes of a conflict mm. conversation determine not only how the rest of the conversation will go, it also determines how the rest of the relationship will go six years down the road. So that first three minutes is really key. Here's the best way to do it. Instead of pointing a finger at your partner, you describe yourself. And there's a particular way to do that. I feel so... You're feeling something, probably negative, about an issue. About what? That's the situation that you're, uh, that's inspiring that feeling. And then here's what I need. Here's my positive need. Again, it's I feel, what emotion. Okay. 
about what, what's the situation, and here's how you can shine for me. Here's my positive need. So instead of saying, you know what, you're so lazy, you never, ever clean up the kitchen. What's the matter with you? Right. How's somebody going to respond to that, right? Defensively. (laughs) But I cleaned it last week, Julie. Hey, come on. (laughs) Give me a break, right? Okay. So uh, instead, you're going to say this. I'm feeling annoyed. There's your feeling. Mm -hmm. About the kitchen being a mess. There's the situation. Would you please clean it up before we have dinner? There you go. That's the positive need. A positive need is really important. It's saying what you do want instead of what you do not want or what you resent, which doesn't work. So flip that on its head and think about, okay, if my partner could do something to make me feel much better in this situation, what would it be? Then say that. And on top of all of this, though, John Gottman, is there's this ratio. I know there's a lot of numbers here. There's a there's the horseman of the apocalypse. There's the five fights everyone has. And then there's this positive to negative interaction ratio, which kind of forms the foundation, I think, for what Julie's talking about. Because, you know, both partners still have to be checked into the relationship. And I think mm-hmm. it sounds like they can check out. And when you check out and you kind of, you know, overdrawn on the, the bank of happiness, it's a lot mm-hmm. harder to even use any of those techniques, right? Exactly. So that was a big surprise when we when we actually calculated the number of seconds that people were kind, generous, interested in their partner, just nodding their head, uh, vocalizing agreement like, hmm, okay, uh-huh. oh, yeah, hmm, oh, yeah, makes sense, good point, you know, and just took the ratio of all those positive things and divided it by the amount of time that they were hostile, angry, defensive, and so on, all the negative ones, for the masters of relationships, the ones who stayed together happily, those people had a ratio of positive to negative five to one during conflict and 20 to one when they weren't fighting. So a relationship's got to be a very rich climate of connection, positivity, and love and affection, kindness, consideration in order for it to work. And that surprised the heck out of me. I thought in a great relationship, if it was the same number of positive and negative, that'd be a great relationship. Compared to the relationships I had before I met Julie, uh, I didn't have very much positivity in those relationships. Mm. And you know, now I'm much, I'm much happier being with a woman who really knows how to say, hmm, interesting, tell me more. Uh, Even about really complicated physics, Austin, (laughs) I get a lot of extra points for this. You really lean in on it, Julie. I do my best. (laughs) I mean, can I ask, because I know that there are people who, you know, have had relationships that have ended, uh, and I was going to say unfortunately ended, but they don't, it's not necessarily unfortunate when a relationship ends, right? Because not every problem can be solved. Not every relationship can or should stay together, right? Yeah, that's really true, Austin. Um, Of course, the ones where there is really serious domestic violence, where Mm -hmm. there's a very clear perpetrator who's taking no responsibility for the violence and blaming it all on the victim, 
that's a relationship where they really need to split up so oh. that the partner who is the victim can stay safe and if they have children keep their children safe too another example is when people have an issue where there is no compromise like uh should we have kids or not and when both people are adamant about that well they're probably going to part to find somebody who wants to have kids with them and it doesn't have to be a hostile breakup it can be a kind one because you know they know why they're breaking up this time. Mm. Julie Schwartz Gottman. Oh, sorry to cut you off there, Julie. We're just about out of break. Julie Schwartz Gottman, John Gottman. They are psychologists. They are founders of the Gottman Institute. They've got a new book, which will, I mean, I've just found it so insightful. It is titled Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into connection. If you missed any of this, by the way, AirTalk, wherever you get your podcasts, you can hear all these tips again. But John, Julie, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Thanks so much, Austin. Thank you, Austin. It was fun. <laughs> it's AirTalk on a Monday. It was fun. We're back with another hour just ahead. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. Austin Cross with you and most of this week for Larry Mantle. Don't worry, he will be back to give you some love on Valentine's Day. Now, to honor Black History Month today, we are diving into the rich yet often misrepresented history of black communities in Southern California. Now, you see, when you think black people first came here to California, it's likely that you'll need to move the timeline back a couple decades. Think a century truth is, black people were in California before California even existed. A lot of history that we read doesn't really mention that. Joining me today to illuminate the history of black folks in Southern California, Marnie Campbell, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University, also author of the book Making Black Los Angeles, Class, Gender, and Community, 1850 through 1917. Professor Campbell, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. So just to start, this is an area that does not get as much attention, especially the window of time that you focus on in your book. But to broaden out our timeline, as we spoke about earlier, when did we first see Black folks show up in California? Well, um, thank you for that question. It's a great question. And um, Black people have been here um, in California since the beginning. So before California became California, 
Um, but if we're talking about as a as an American state, ever since the beginning, Black people came right in the end of the 1840s and, and in the 1850s. Now, I know a lot of the history that I've heard was you know, a, a change in farming policies after the Great Depression, of course, uh, maybe paid farmers so that they didn't have to plant. So that sent people here. A lot of people were fleeing the South. And there's a lot of people, of course, who came for uh, jobs in the defense industry. But that's often the history that we hear about in textbooks the most, uh, even if it, if it even does at all show up in textbooks, I should say. But why do you think it's the often repeated story that most of us came during World War II? Well, <clears throat> it's definitely the largest group of African-American migrants um, who came in. And there's, a, there's you know, plenty of documentation of that migration. And so that history is a little bit easier to tap into mm. than the earlier history where there's a lot less documentation and far fewer um, people that, that would even be considered, you know, for um, things like community building, which is something that I focus on, um, or even had been counted because a lot of people pre-1865 came in, were, were brought in as slaves and weren't counted as such. So they weren't, we didn't have a slave schedule in our census and things like that. So so there are a lot of missed um, recordings of, of those earlier mm. groups. And even within that, I'd say within the field of history study, there's a lot of focus on the East and on the South. Um, but the West, a lot of it either picks up at, you know, the Spanish, uh, the mission life, or uh, on the gold rush, which came much later into the 1840s. So within that, within that kind of already a, a lack of information being out there, especially in the general curriculum for elementary school, younger grades, it's also the fact that the stories of people of color just aren't really getting represented, recorded. Yeah, I mean, you know, for the past, um, I don't know, say 40 <laughs> or so years, we've had a lot more um, history of people of color in um, in the West and in California specifically. Um, but again, you know, you got to go to where the larger populations are to find the... the um, I don't want to say richer histories, but you'll find more history of of those um, kinds as opposed to um, where where we had much much smaller populations of Black people in California, specifically Southern California, compared to say Texas, right? right. Um, and so so we're still. I mean, now there's a a whole um, group of people who are are writing and publishing about. Um, the history of African Americans um, in in California and throughout the West, as there has been, but um, but we're getting a lot more history now than we than we've had in a long time. Talking right now with Marnie Campbell, professor African American studies at Loyola Marymount University and author of the book Making Black Los Angeles: Class, Gender, and Community, eighteen fifty to nineteen seventeen. So going back to those early days before California was uh, a state, was part of the United States, and then working our way up through the timeline, what were some of the major drivers that were bringing black people to California? Because I'd imagine the gold rush brought you know, people out from just about everywhere around the world. But what were some of the main 
points where you could actually see the population increasing? Yeah, so initially, um, as I said earlier, it, it's a lot of Black people are being brought um, as slaves from mm. the Deep South, and they're they're being brought to different parts of the state, a lot of times to mine for gold or to work as servants while um, while their owners, you know, um, did their gold mining work. Um, and oftentimes they were, um, African-Americans were um, basically rented out to other people to work on their land or work in their homes and things like that. So that's the initial um, wave of African-Americans that come during that time. And Can then I just ask, that, though, was, was there any law that was enforcing or allowing for that or was it just unregulated yeah. in a way or how did that operate? Right. So <laughs> there was no law. I mean, the law basically said we're not a slaveholding state, but what we will do is we will respect the rights of other states oh, wow. so that if you had slaves and you wanted to bring them to California, you could legally, as long as you were not um, planning on staying here, you know, forever, right? And huh. in the long term. So as long as you can prove that you were only here short term, if you, um, for some reason, were caught with slaves, or somebody filed a complaint about you, um, you just had to prove that you weren't planning on staying in California permanently. Talking right now with Marnie Campbell uh, about Black history in California. So you were going through the timeline for me after uh, the gold rush is where we were right now. What were some of the other key moments where we saw that population increase? Yeah, so we get another um, increase um, just after the Civil War. And a lot of that has to do with the idea of California and the idea for Black people um, as as a place where um, it's definitely much, much less violent um, and you had more opportunities here. And, and one of the examples I like to give is that you um, could be you know, a domestic worker in the South, but when you came to California, you could earn as much money in a month mm. as you would in one week in the South doing the same kind of work, right? So there are a lot more opportunities for you to build um, um, a life for your family and, and things like that in California at the time. And then, um, and so we see a little bit more of that around the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And then up through the First World War, we see another um, significant boom in um, in the Black community throughout California. Um, and that sort of steadily increases through the Second World War. And that's where we have the, you know, the majority of the history is written is like from that point forward, right? Professor Campbell, I know you focus in a lot on uh, the communities that people built. Mm -hmm. And so black people in California were also very politically active. They were pushing for equality even before the end of the Civil War, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and black people throughout the state would, um, through... Um, through black newspapers and letter writing would um, sort of pull together for campaigns to help black people in need, whether they were, you know, I, I talked about um, brought in a slave. So if they ran away, for example, and got caught, 
um, under the Fugitive Slave Act, they were supposed to be returned to slavery. So Black people would pull their money to get them legal representation. Black people were also, um, after the end of the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, Black people would um, join groups like the, at the beginning of the 20th century, the NAACP, um, to fight for equality and, and equal rights. And um, we know about Charlotta Bass here in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. who um, was quite progressive, ran a, a progressive newspaper, the California Eagle, which today is the LA Sentinel. Um, and so, um, you know, they would they would promote a lot of the progressive agenda through her newspaper, but Black people also would promote just, you know, social justice issues together throughout the state no matter really what it was, if if they believed in it, they would fight for it. You know, and I, they supported, I'm sorry, um, the last please. thing I want to say, they supported the, you know, the, the better known and well-known um, Black leaders throughout the country. So like W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker mm. T. Washington, um, and on and on. You know, I have this theory just going to pre-Civil War, and let me know if there's anything to this, but in the Southern states, we know that more than one in three people in those states were enslaved. Do you think that seeing black people organize in California might have been a factor in why the southern states seceded? That they saw the potential for maybe even becoming politically outnumbered if the the people who were enslaved, the black people, were given all the full rights of voting American citizen? Wow, that's a loaded question. I wish that were true, but um, I... I don't, I I don't think so, right? Mm. I don't I don't think that that would because the population here was so small, um, mm. and I don't think that it really um, uh, scared anyone, <laughs> for lack of a better word. I think that that um, um, the power that Black people had was pretty localized. If they were mm. able to get something together, it didn't always work out for Black people in the state. Interesting. Talking right now with Marnie Campbell, professor of African-American studies, Loyola Marymount University. Um, let me move us up in the timeline a little bit to uh, the days when your book really leaves off is about 1917-ish. But when did we start to see these historically black communities in Los Angeles start to form? We do have Lamert Park. I know mm -hmm. in South Los Angeles, South Central, there was the uh, Central Jazz Corridor, which was like the it spot for anybody mm -hmm. to go of all races, just to hear great music. Uh, there was like the Dunbar Hotel, which was mm -hmm. a center for black thought and where people would meet and, and eat and, and party into the night. When did we start to see these communities form? Yeah, so these are the communities forming um, right after the uh, beginning of the 20th century. So in the early 1900s is when we start to see um, these communities. So initially, you know, what we call downtown Los Angeles was Los Angeles. And as that area grew, um, Black people just got pushed further south and um, and sometimes east or southeast um, into what becomes, um, you know, south Los Angeles, we call south Los Angeles mm -hmm. today, 
um, South Central Los Angeles, but um, these neighborhoods like West Adams, for example, same time period, the late, the very late um, 1800s to the early 1900s. And um, with the construction of the 10 freeway, um, you know, Black people start getting pushed further south below um, into what becomes the Central Avenue corridor, which really flourishes after, um, you know, it's growing um, before the First World War and really flourishes after. So we're talking 1920s, 30s, 40s. But Black people had been there um, really since the 1880s. Just to bring it up to today, because I know we've seen such a shift in the Black population in Los Angeles, especially over maybe the past 30 years, uh, been large departure from Southern Los Angeles, uh, and Latino population has continued to grow. How would you describe today, you know, what's happened with the Black population in Los Angeles uh, as far as, you know, what it was 30 years ago compared to now. Are we seeing it spread out more in, in different parts? I know a lot of people went uh, east to the Inland Empire and places like that. Mm. Yeah, we're seeing it spread out a lot more. So so as you mentioned, the Inland Empire up to um, through Riverside County, up through Kern County to the north, out to Palmdale in the high desert, Lancaster. Um, and also we had a lot of out-migration of African-Americans um, to other, um, back into the South, cities hmm. like Atlanta, um, for example, Houston, um, Dallas, things like that. So so there's a little bit of, um, of different kinds of migration, but one of the things I wanna mention, especially when we're talking about the Inland Empire is that 30 years ago, um, we had a huge or beginning of a huge um, push of, um, of people out of LA County. And a lot of it had to do with um, gang injunctions mm. that um, were being um, were being used. And so if any juvenile was was um, convicted of a crime, they were, um, and this happened all over the state, this wasn't just LA County, but they were then forced to leave uh, the county that they lived in, right? Oh. So their families either um, were able to purchase something or rent something in the next county so that they could still commute back and forth to work, or they had relatives in, in counties nearby where they could send their kids um, whoever got in trouble, right? Um, or go and, and sort of have like someone that they could move in with. And so that caused a lot of this migration out initially, I would say in the 90s and early 2000s, but also there was a lot of development going on in those places that I mentioned, Kern County and um, the High Desert, um, Inland Empire, San Bernardino County, where, where houses were being built that you could afford and have a much nicer, bigger piece of property than what you could have right here in the city. What has that affected really quickly? I know we've got to go, but that's just such a curious point. But what has that affected within the, the Black community when we've seen people leaving, going other places? Has it affected, say, the, the economic diversity within the group uh, or anything else like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it affects a lot of things, right? It, it affects economic diversity, it affects um, political, um, 
collaboration and um, political, even just power, because it sort of waters down, <laughs> right? Mm. Like the 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 um, political participation, it it affects a lot of different things. It affects the way the schools are, um, you know, the diversity of the schools and the way that the schools operate. Um, so education is in, is affected, and there are just a lot of aspects just of life in general that um if you're if you're looking at the out migration from the city everything sort of gets watered down it does feed into um you know building a lot of that diversity in those other areas but um it also then allows some of those other other people who moved out say by choice um who went out to buy property and things like that it allows them to have um you know wealth and right. generational wealth that they may not have been able to get here um in this very um overpriced um city right. and so so it does allow opportunities on the one hand yeah, I, I guess I know that firsthand. My family definitely moved to the Inland Empire from Los Angeles mm -hmm. right about the early thousands, late 90s. And, you know, there was so, so much opportunity out in the IE at the time for people who yeah. wanted to become homeowners. And now you look at the IE and the home values in the IE and you think, wow, that's really making a difference for a mm -hmm. lot of people. That's Professor Marnie Campbell, a professor of African-American studies at Loyola Marymount University, also author of the book, Making Black Los Angeles Class, Gender, and Community from 1850 to 1917. Such a fascinating conversation. Professor Campbell, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we've been talking a lot about love on AirTalk today. We had the Gottmans on last hour. Definitely a great conversation for you to catch on our podcast online, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of interesting stuff there. And when we come back, we're going to talk about love languages. And you might have dabbled in this at some point. You might have even learned yours. I know I'm quality time, for example. But some new research that makes people a little bit skeptical about whether or not love languages are the way to actually create, build on that connection with your partner. We're going to talk about that in 60 seconds when we come back on AirTalk. Stick around. Ah, well, we get the jams on AirTalk. It just makes it a better day. This is AirTalk on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle most of this week. He'll be back with you for Valentine's Day because let's face it, that's going to be a fun day. But in honor of Valentine's Day, we here on AirTalk want to be your Cupid all week with a series of topics on love. So right now we want to talk about love languages, what they are, how you figure it out, and if it is really, really and truly, a useful tool in your relationship. Joining us to talk about it, Gary Lewandowski, professor of psychology at Monmouth University in New Jersey. Professor, thank you so much for coming on. Professor Lewandowski, are you with us? I am. I'm right I'm uh, here. We got you, Professor. Excellent. All right. And, and for folks who are listening in, this is also my call out to you. I'm curious to listeners if you've used love languages in your own relationship, and if you found it to be a useful tool or not. 866-893-5722 is our number, 
800-893-5722. You can also email us, atcomments at las.com. Just be sure to let us know your first name and where you're messaging us from. But hey, we have a line open today. Come hang out, 866-893-5722. Well, Gary, just to start us off, what is the origin of the love languages and, and what are they? Sure. Yeah. So the love languages, it, it comes from a very, very popular book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And this book has been read by 20 million plus people. It's been translated into 50 languages. And so it really just takes a bunch of relationship behaviors and simplifies it into five main love languages. You know, if you were a, uh, a kid at a Christian college like I was many years ago, this was certainly a book that you picked up off the shelves in the bookstore. Um, and everybody yes. was toting around in their relationship. Can you take us through the different types of love sure. languages as, as Gary puts them? Sure. Yeah. And so there are five love languages. And so I'm going to actually give them to you in an order that research has shown uh, goes from the most to the least common, right? So okay. the most common love language that people have is quality time. And so quality time is um, time spent focused on each other, intently listening, undivided attention. The second most common love language is physical touch, which is exactly what it sounds like, holding hands, hugs, mm. that could be, even be sexual intimacy. The third most common love language is acts of service. And so this is helping and supporting your partner, doing errands and tasks for them, things that they need done. The fourth one is words of affirmation. And so that's appreciation, compliments, admiration, just you know, telling your partner they're the best. Uh, and then the fifth one are gifts. And so gifts, exactly what it sounds like, symbols and affection of presents, flowers, anything that communicates thoughtfulness, effort, or expense. So these are things that we can learn. There are some tests online that can help you kind of figure out what your top ones are. And this was developed, as you mentioned, by the Baptist pastor, Gary Chapman, because this is what he kept seeing in couples uh, that he was counseling. Uh, and so he, he realized that it came down to these things. There's a lot of question about whether or not uh, it's actually a valuable way to approach challenges in a relationship. But I want to bring into the conversation Rebecca Hendricks. Rebecca is a licensed marriage and family therapist and integrative holistic psychotherapist based in New York. Rebecca actually uses them in practice. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, so talk to me about how you use the love languages that Gary just lined out for us, how you use them in your practice, and if you actually see uh, things working out when, when you actually start employing them. Sure. I mean, I, I've been using love languages for a long time as kind of an initial step to help couples get to know each other's owner's manual. Yeah. I mean, I, I help couples see that it's their job to share their owner's manual with their partner so that they can get their needs met. And part of this is getting to know when and how you feel most loved. I mean, most couples come in with some sort of finger pointing after not feeling connected for mm. quite a while. Something like maybe one person might say, I feel like a roommate. He doesn't tell me what's going on. I, the other one might feel I work around the clock and make dinner three times a week and it's never enough. And then round and round they go. So I use the love languages as an initial step to help them see that there's love there but it's being expressed in different languages. Her love language oh. may be quality time and his acts of service. It can help them de-escalate like from a cycle of, of blaming and finger pointing. 
You know, I'll say we had the Gottmans on last hour, and they talked about this ratio of uh, one positive interaction, uh, or so five positive interactions to one negative interaction. And it sounds to me like using this technique, especially if the bridge between their connection has been damaged or completely destroyed, they might even be at the point where they're not looking at each other and they're just responding, okay, whatever, you know, to whatever the other person says. It sounds like it's a way to start to repair that bridge on a very base level so you can begin the rest of treatment, right? Yes, it is. It, it, it's, a, it's a good way of putting it. It's just kind of like an initial way to help them see that even though they've been di- disconnected for a really long time, sometimes maybe years of not feeling close or connected, that there is love there. Because most of the time somebody is doing, when they're doing that love language like Um, taking the trash out or bringing somebody flowers. They're doing that because they love that person, but often it doesn't land that way because the person has a different love language. So this can be kind of the, the first step in helping them to see that love is still there so that then you can start to unpack the different dynamics that have got them stuck. We are talking about love languages here on Air Talk. And I'm curious for folks listening in if you've used love languages in your own relationship. Now, there's a lot of questions about how it's used, maybe if it's been overused, maybe if there are just more love languages than the initial uh, five or so that have been mentioned. But if you've used it successfully in your relationship to maybe turn things around, to build a bridge with your partner, and you're willing to share, and I would really appreciate it if you were willing to share, we have a number. 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. We'd love to hear from you. Eight, nine, uh, 866, pardon me, 893-5722. I want to come back to Gary Lewandowski, professor of psychology at Monmouth University. So what is the criticism that we've heard and seen recently when it comes to these love languages? I mean, one that I kind of mentioned earlier was that there's likely more than five. But what have you heard? Yeah. And so, you know, a recent paper just came out. I want to be clear that this is not my own research. I, I've talked about love languages extensively on my own podcast or love strategies podcast, but this, oh. this particular research is from some colleagues of mine at university of Toronto and York university. And so essentially what they did was they looked at all of the existing evidence that science relationship science has about the love languages. And so, you know, there's, there's a couple different pieces, but, you know, I'll first go to the one that, that you mentioned, which is, you know, Gary Chapman basically says there are five love languages. And what we find in relationship science is, you know, the five things that he proposed are facets of how people show love in relationships. But of course, there's not just five, right? And so, and maybe even, you know, the five that he mentions, all the five he mentions aren't even the most important five that there are. And so, Mm. you know, some of the key missing behaviors are things like how partners manage conflict and listen and communicate with each other and how they balance power and respect, how they help each other achieve personal goals and maintain autonomy. Um, and, And the one that I think is definitely a top five love language as, as it were is being very um, engaged with each other's pursuit of growth and having a synergistic approach to it where you and your partner work together to help each other become better people and then kind of achieve more as a couple than you could individually. So fascinating. I mean, that that need for growth and the need to help each other with growth, um, it sounds so elementary to me right now, but do you think that mainly the reason that this has become 
something that we're aware of now that is very important in a relationship is just over the past 30 or so years, our understanding of relationships, our roles in relationships, religiosity, so many things have changed within us as well as within the science. Absolutely. I, I think for mainly for good, people just have higher expectations from their from their relationship than they did in the past. Before a relationship partner was someone to kind of navigate life with and, and just kind of the ups and downs of paying the bills and, and, and those very mundane kinds of things. And I think people now are just expecting more from the relationship partner. They, they want a true partner in life and someone to help them in, in their personal pursuits of growth and, and expansion. And I think that's actually a, a pretty positive revelation for relationships. For folks listening in, if you've used Love Languages, 20 million people have purchased the book on Love Languages that came out in 1992 from Baptist Pastor Gary Chapman. But if you've used them in your life, if you think that you've used them successfully, or maybe if they didn't work for you, you tried it, but that wasn't really the answer. 866-893-5722 is our number. 866-893-5722. I want to come back to Rebecca Hendricks, licensed marriage and family therapist, in New York. Rebecca, when it comes to love languages as you see them, how much of that really comes down to uh, our relationships with our parents and how we came to understand love from them? Well, I think our love language, our primary love language, um, or how we learned to show love is often how our parents predominantly loved us. Like my mom showed her love a lot through baking. There mm. was always fresh baked goods when I'd come home from school. And she also showed it through buying gifts. Sometimes I'd come home and there'd just be new clothes on the bed. There wasn't a lot of communicating, but I knew that I was loved because of these things that she was doing. And so sure enough, as I became an adult and started dating, I started doing some of the same things. And so I think that you know, what is role modeled for us is what we know and often what we strive to do when we start connecting with other humans and falling in love and trying to do relationship. But then after a while, sometimes you can find that whatever you're doing isn't landing with the other person because mm. they're different than you. They have different wounds. They grew up in different backgrounds. They have different needs. And so this process is a, a way to kind of help people start to talk about those things. Terry is calling us from Lamert Park. And Terry, I understand that you have used love languages in your relationship. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. Um, I, while I was studying for my MFT, uh, I read about the five love languages. And um, it came in handy when my husband and I had a situation with daily chores. So, you know, um, I kind of needed more help. And, you know, he, he mentioned that he felt like I didn't thank him when he did take out the trash. And, and that made me realize that his love language is words of affirmation. So I was from then on acknowledging when he did do something. But then for me, it's more acts of service. So I was able to communicate to him, like, you know, when you, you know, uh, when you do more of this, it's very helpful to me. So we were able to communicate and fix that little thing. And I was able to acknowledge more often that, you know, if I see him do something, then, then when he hears it, he's more willing to do it again. 
Um, and then, of course, I have to add the little point of, you know, um, I don't get thanked for when I do all a thousand little unseen things. But, you know, that's just <laughs> after the fact. But it definitely helped us uh, communicate better. So that's one way I use it. Terry, it's so interesting that you say that. What I've learned about relationships, if, if it happens anywhere, it's happening everywhere. Um, and so I completely understand everything. And I'm sure a lot of people are vibing with that, too. That's Terry. Park. Terry, thank you so much for calling us today. We're going to continue this conversation when we come back in just about 60 seconds. But if you would like to share how love languages, how you've used them in your relationship, uh, if they've been helpful at all, or if maybe it wasn't the silver bullet to help get you and your partner over a big hurdle in your lives. 866-893-5722 is the number. 866-893-5722. We do have Michael on the line in Pasadena. We're going to go to Michael when we come back. We're also talking with our experts. 866-893-5722. Back in 60 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. What does love have to do with it? Everything. On Air Talk. it's a love week here. We're talking about love every day. I'm Austin Cross, and most of this week for Larry Mandel, he's back with you on Valentine's Day, because let's face it, that's fun. That's a fun show. 866-893-5722 is the number to call. We're talking about love languages right now, if you're just joining us. There is some research that maybe love languages are not a precise science. You know, they, they might not be... Uh, the cure-all in situations, and there's even some criticism that they, you know, suggest that an unhappy partner uh, could maybe change or compromise their way into a happier relationship. We're going to talk about the criticisms, but we also want to hear from you about if you've used it in your relationship, because a lot of people, 20 million people bought this book by Baptist pastor Gary Chapman since it came out in 1992. So that means there's got to be something to it. It's it's vibing with people. It's connecting with people. If it's worked for you, if it has not, I would love to hear your story either way or what has worked for you. They say there are five love languages, but there's also folks who think that there are more. 866-893-5722 is the number. Michael is calling us from Pasadena. Michael, what is your love language tool? Well, this is the tool that my wife Penny and I use. We've been married over 28 years, Mm. and... You know, when you're married a long time, you've got all the ordinary life that always tends to get in the way of like, like it was when you were courting each oh, other. Man. When you're courting each other, you could actually 
have a look you could share with with your partner oh my god i'm having a love moment right now etc and you might end up having sex or this or that you're dating but over time that tends to get lost you might actually be doing doing the dishes and for example and then you look at your partner it's like you have this really love moment but it's lost you don't even mention it because you're not going to be able to do anything about it but my wife and i developed a tool and we call it a love attack but you can call it anything you want I might be looking, all of a sudden I'm having this moment, and she'll look at me and go, honey, what's going on? And I'm going, I'm having a love attack. <laughs> and what that does in that moment, it becomes a moment of intimacy, not loss. Wow. And that, build, that, can keep, that then makes the foundation, even after 28 years, it builds on that some more. A wow. moment of intimacy, not loss. Michael, and that is... that's all it is. It's a quick pause. That's a wonderful thing, Michael and Pasadena. Married, you said 28 years, Michael? To my wife, Penny, yes. Congratulations to you and Penny. That is just a wonderful way of showing love. That's Michael and Pasadena, 866-893-5722. If there's something that has worked for you, if you found your own love language with your spouse, I'd love to hear from you, 866-893-5722. Rebecca Hendricks is on the line. Rebecca is a licensed marriage and family therapist based in New York, and I mean, it's always heartwarming, Rebecca, to hear of these moments where maybe couples turn into each other or they kind of create these uh, moments. But I do want to ask you about how love languages have been used uh, in the past. And there is a concern, as I alluded to earlier, uh, that sometimes when they're used, that it could be seen as a way to suggest that a partner who's not happy with things in a relationship, maybe deeply unhappy uh, with how a partner is behaving or sharing the the, the duties, the workload, um, that it's really a way to get them to compromise uh, in a way that maybe they shouldn't have to. I'm wondering if this is something that a criticism that you've heard, or maybe if you have a response to that. Well, I can I can certainly see how um, like if you if you think that love languages are going to solve years of disconnection. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to happen. It's it's a, a bit oversimplified, and you know most couples have deeper dynamics that need to be um, unpacked a little bit of feeling not loved or not needed or having hurts and wounds and resentments and not able to share frustrations that have built up over time, and so you know if you just try to kind of patch that wound with well my love language is this and mm. and so this is what i want then it's not going to deal with the with the core reasons and the core wounds that um got the couple disconnected so i can certainly see that happening i mean i could see the situation where a person might say well my love language is words of affirmation and so the partner will try to to give words of affirmation and the first thing that the other partner might say is i don't believe it. I don't believe you because if you if what you're saying is true, then why are you this way? Why are you that way? Do you see maybe how it creates some complication in that that way where if if you say that you receive love in one way, you also have to be re- ready to receive that love, right? Yeah, it's 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 definitely um a, a going back and forth of the energy of love, like giving and receiving, and sometimes people can say that they you know want words of affirmation, but if their own, you know, 
personal work or personal wounding is preventing them from receiving it, then it's, it's, mm. it's, it's not going to work. Um, some, sometimes it's just a people, you know, relationships and people are a little bit more complex and there's not a one size fit all. I mean, relationships are like gardens, you know, then in, the, in the beginning, they're flowers looking at each other, but, you know, as the last caller said, life can get in the way and weeds get in a way in, in the way. And so sometimes even the love language, if you're giving it is not going to be the, the solve. Got about 30 seconds left, but Gary Lewandowski, professor of psychology at Monmouth, anything that you want to comment on from this conversation that you've heard? Yeah, I, I just, I really like the idea of using love language, love languages as an initial step. I mean, people don't do enough examination of their relationship. And so if this is a way for people to start paying more attention to their relationship, that's a good thing. I'd also say that one research paper I mentioned earlier, really, instead of looking at things as love languages, they suggest looking at it as a balanced diet of you know you need quality time touch service affirmation gifts you need all five of those things different things at different times and so you know what i like hearing from all the callers is just a greater awareness of all the different ways people can show love because there's a lot of good in relationships if people know where to look mm, we want to help you show love here on air talk that's gary lewandowski professor of psychology at monmouth university in new jersey we also heard from rebecca hendricks Licensed marriage and family therapist based in New York. My thanks to our guests. When we come back, it is not a food Friday. Think of it as a food Monday. And we're going to have some tacos. But they're tacos with a twist. Think kebabs, maybe. We're back in 60 seconds on Airtime. It's Air Talk here on LA's 89.3M Austin Cross. You know, the beauty of Southern California's sprawling food scene is that no matter where you are, you are bound to find some excellent fusions of traditional cuisines. Case in point, Mideast Tacos. They just opened up their very first brick and mortar in Silver Lake. For several years, they were a pop-up uh, at Smorgasburg in downtown LA, Sunday Food Festival. So joining me in studio right now, Chef Armin Martirosian. I wanted to make sure I was getting that one right. I had to put on the brakes, pump the brakes a little bit. He's the business partner. Uh, he and his business partner have been melding Armenian barbecue with tacos, burritos for the longest time. He joins me now to talk about some food that he brought us here in studio. Armin, thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure's all mine. So, I mean, talk to me about how your time working in the kitchens with your parents. You actually have a history of this. Um, helped prepare you to launch this food concept? So I've been cooking all my life. I remember the first time I ever cooked when I was like three years old, I was baking with my, my mother. Wow. And I burned my, I got a scar on my wrist or my uh, my arm and I was trying to bake something for her. Yeah. And after that, at six years old, I was wrapping mini kebabs at a restaurant called Mini Kebab. Uh, and throughout the years developing my skill set at around 20 27 years old we just made this crazy burrito once and oh my God. seven years ago started to develop and develop and we felt confident through covid to brick and mortar everybody's running the other way we were like let's brick and mortar let's and so and mortar we it. <laughs> so we did and uh in front of you you have the chicken kebab burrito oh, okay after loads of nice r d by the way, this is just another rough draft in my 
the mess of my mind that happens. The, what you have also in front yeah, of you. Yeah, the sauces. So there's a green one. To describe for people, there's a green one and kind of an orange one. So what are the sauces in front of me here? The green one is our avocado salsa. It's very oh. traditional. <laughs> it's got hints of acid, okay. nice and fattiness with, uh, with avocado. And the, the red one, actually, the orange one, uh-huh. is a tum arbol, which is basically a traditional Lebanese garlic sauce. Oh, interesting. And that's emulsified with uh, Mexican ingredients such as the arbol, the uh, chipotle adobo, and I also fire-roasted bell peppers. Oh, my God. And that's actually paying respects to Chef Wes Avila, who own Gorilla Tacos as well. He's kind of inspired a lot of the fusion-esque of Midi's tacos. I mean, I'm getting the scent of the garlic. Mm-hmm. It just smells so good. Um, <laughs> talk to me a little bit more about um, how you just came up with this idea to fuse two different things together. And while you do that, I'm going to unwrap this beautiful, warm burrito with a label that says chicken <laughs> on it. Uh, give all the people the, the FOMO of missing out as they open up this burrito. Uh, ASMR real quick. <laughs> <laughs> how did you think of this? So... You know, we had a lot of food bloggers into the restaurant at one point, and a gentleman oh, named Nick, yeah. who used to run an Instagram called Grubfiend, came in, and we made this ridiculous burrito. Uh, we then ran it live with oh. a big media company called Food Beast, and we've been developing it ever since. It used to be wrapped in lavash, which is traditional Armenian flatbread. Right, right, right. And we thought that this would actually be a better fit because of the way it holds and the way it travels uh, and the crunch textures to it. It's a little different. Mm-hmm. The lavash, unfortunately, didn't couldn't compete with the freshly made tortilla by I... Mejorado. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's components of the chicken kebab on skewers over an open fire in there, oh, salsa roja, gosh. there's fresh basmati rice, Thai basil, cilantro, that tumar bowl, and the salsa roja in there. Okay, so I'm going to take a bite of 100%. this. Is, should I dip it into one of these salsas in front of me? So I like, as a traditional burrito eater myself, I like to... Take a bite Try and first. then start. Because, okay. you know, sometimes the sauce just drips all yeah, over. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a it's closed burrito. you got to <laughs> yeah. create that opening yeah, exactly. for the sauce to enter. Uh, okay, I'm going to take a bite, but talk to me about business. How's business been since you opened up? Yeah, uh, we opened two weeks ago. It's been insane. We've had a lot of a lot of mm. love, a lot of support mm. from the local uh, Silver Lake community. Not just Silver Lake, but the greater Los Angeles community. Wow. And what's good is that the purpose of Midi's Tacos as well is supposed to bring people together. As I oh, love God. to say, we like to break bread with people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think nowadays, especially, we need to bring people mm-hmm. together collectively. And I believe our food does that as well. It's so representative of Southern California mm-hmm. because it is such a mix of cultures. I was getting like a smoky chicken mm-hmm. sort of flavor in there. Mm-hmm. So um, I love smoky. Like yeah. smoky is one of my favorite flavors. Same. Um, so I'm so thankful that you did that. <laughs> I'm going to try one of these salsas. Is either one of them spicy? Because I got to navigate this conversation for another three minutes. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> so so a lot of thought went into this. We had okay. to realize who our community was and the general demographic that was going to be consuming our product. Mm-hmm. Uh, the avocado salsa is gently spicy, enough to tickle the back of your throat while okay. you eat. However, it, it it passes subtly. I would try that because it's got a nice acid hint to okay. it. And since it is a fattier product that you're consuming, it would be a good offset to everything that you're also eating at the same it's time. It's smooth, it's green. and it's smooth, it's green, it's fresh. It smells so fresh. It you is. You can just smell the We make it every day. Oh, my gosh. Nice um, and acidic. <laughs> just to remind folks right now, uh, Mideast Tacos, they just opened their brick and mortar yes. in Silver Lake. Uh, and I just put on the uh, the green salsa here. Um, what are your plans? What are some other things on the menu that people can look for? So for now, we wanted to just make sure we can give them a solid product. We initially started mm. with these mulitas that were, you know, drenched the cheese, in. The cheese and the meat? 
Yeah, right. basically. Oh. So it's like a mini quesadilla, but we couldn't we couldn't perform because we were so slammed. Right. So we took it off the menu for now. It's an off-menu thing. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to talk about it because I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to come in demanding a Molita. I yeah. want one now. Yeah, it's actually. so good. Uh, we've been working on it. I'm currently like developing this lamb taco recipe with delicious yogurt and dill. Oh. That's just That's not even on the menu, but I'm working on it. We have breakfast that we want to launch. Uh, the tomb arbol is my favorite. really quickly. So yes, what was it called again? The tomb arbol. It's a beautiful. Yeah. Okay, and it's a, it's got a garlicky, hundred percent garlicky. To it. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. try. Whoever you don't want to talk to today, just go directly in their face. And they'll <laughs> just just, you can avoid them. So you're all telling day me today. I'm gonna need some gum after this. <laughs> Potentially. Um, I mean, it just smells so good. Mm. Um, so you're constantly developing new recipes. Yeah. Constantly trying to make that fusion happen. Hundred percent. You're very uh, you're very SoCal. It's like a SoCal spot. It, it is, and you know it's it's. Besides it being SoCal, I see this as a worldwide concept. Mm. And I think my business partners as well because, you know, this is a vision that I see going to Mm. another level at one point. Sorry. No, it's okay. I'm just just savoring. You know, what's beautiful about this is you don't have to choose cultures when you're eating this Mm -hmm. because between the two salsas, it's completely changing your experience when you eat it. And I'm sure that was the goal when you you initially made it. are there other salsas that we could look forward to, too? Uh, the salsa roja, which is in it. Mm-hmm. I have a fire-roasted pico that I make. We had to take off the menu just because it's all about <laughs> making sure it's right. Right. Uh, it's so, so much work. We used to go through, like, cases of tomatoes just to make, like, a forecourt of the pico itself. Right. It just didn't make sense for us to do that. So I'm, I'm working on different things. We have one thing that I actually want to mention is our, uh, our papas. It's Ooh. basically cottage-style fries. We hit it with salt and Aleppo pepper, and we serve it with the tumar bowl. My God. Fascinating. Next time you come back here, you got to bring some 100%. of that as well. It's <laughs> Armin Martirosian. He's co-owner and chef at Mideast Tacos. Just opened their brick and mortar in Silver Lake. Congratulations on your new spot. This is a stellar burrito. Thank I'm looking you. forward to this. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Back with you tomorrow. Have your talk. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.